Today's episode of the Triple Threat Podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee, a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students at Boston's Northeastern University. Today, the company is on a mission to get people energized with tasty caffeinated snacks. Every Eat Your Coffee bar is caffeinated with fair trade coffee, comparable to one cup, and is made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. And as always, energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise and he was the greatest world's heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. the triple threat podcast being brought to you today empowered on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire by our new sponsor eat your coffee if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip the one and only jp john paz and on this show on his show for episode number 69 we welcome in the host with the most I'm trying to think of something that rhymes uh, in a dirty way to, to work in episode 69, but whatever. It's Shane Douglas, folks. The franchise in the flesh for episode number 69. Shane, how you doing tonight? He said 69. <laughs> <laughs> my little my little Beavis and Butthead uh, tribute there uh, for the uh, big 6'9". Uh, going fantastic. Uh, beautiful fall day here in Pittsburgh and... Uh, uh, number one and number two sons were over tonight, so it's a perfect, perfect day. Awesome. Very nice. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a real cool start to the fall season. Obviously, football's been well into uh, the season so far, but we kind of had that hot weather lingering in the Northeast and kind of everywhere you went. Even two weeks ago, I remember being out on a Sunday and it being like 95 degrees. It was so damn hot, but this past yeah. weekend, it kind of hit you. <laughs> like a stiffy right in the face that uh, we got cold out of the blue, but I know you were traveling down to North Carolina. So uh, what was the weekend like there heading down to uh, North Kakalaki? It was real similar to, to up here. It was uh, about the same type of temperature, uh, a little bit of rain on the way down. Uh, uh, great house, uh, the uh, uh, NCWA, uh, NCWA. Uh, their show was in Clayton and, uh, 
it was great to share with uh, Nikolai Volkov was there, uh, 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 Barbarian, who I wrestled, uh, you know, it was, uh, George South, he's always a pleasure to see. So it was, it was a really good time, uh, had a great weekend, and I got to hang out with uh, a kid named Darren, uh, one of the uh, co-workers of my agent's son. And what a, what a really cool kid. You know, just, uh, first of all, funny as shit. Uh, you know, coming out with little quips all the way up and down on the trip. And uh, just, just, you know, gave it a whole different vibe for the weekend. So it was really cool just to hang out. And uh, he helped me with the merchandise table and uh, uh, all around great weekend. Very nice. I just want to clarify, you met Nikita Koloff, right? Not Nikolai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nikolai, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, the Freudian slip of after getting hit with chairs for 30 years. Uh, yeah, uh, Nikita was there. And uh, oddly enough, unless I'm mistaken, and a fan may, may shoot something in and, and say that I am, but I believe that that was the first and only time that I'd ever done anything uh, in the ring with Nikita. He was the special guest referee for... Uh, uh, me and Barbarians. So I, uh, you know, it's, it was a pretty cool weekend for me for that. Cause I was, you know, uh, he was one of the guys on the top of the card as I was coming up the card and, uh, always been a great guy. Uh, so it was really cool to get a chance to work with him a bit and uh, had a good time. Wow. That's pretty cool. Never would have, uh, would have realized that you guys didn't cross paths in the ring, but obviously, yeah, like you said, he was on top as you were coming up, and Nikita's always been great to uh, to us in the two-man power trip. We just had him on over the past summer uh, talking about Dusty Rhodes and the impact that Dusty had on his career for our Dusty tribute episode. But let's not downplay sure. being in the ring with the Barbarian because <laughs> no matter what year it is, yeah. 2018, he closes his eyes. It's still 1991, and I'm sure that's always a, a fun time getting in the ring with the Barbarian. Yeah, he's you know for you know, he's a couple years older than me, uh, but still you know big as a house and uh, you know strong as an ox. Uh, you know he he used to terrorize me in the ring whenever I was younger. So uh, there was a little bit of that you know Freudian slipping back into that role uh, as a young boy that I had to keep on you know pulling myself out of uh, on Saturday night. But uh, you know Barbarian, he's always a great opponent. Uh, you know delivers the goods in the ring. And, you know, for me, that's all I've ever wanted from an opponent. You know, somebody can uh, pull their end of the bargain and Barbarian can do that in spades. Yeah, yeah he's, uh, he's still one of the best and he's out there all the time just grinding it. And uh, he still looks like the Barbarian. And as long as he's still intimidating and he still scares the shit out of people, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's always going to be a good time to be the Barbarian in professional wrestling. Because not that many look like uh, <laughs> the monster that he is anymore, but... Before we get into today's topic, uh, which is going to be the opening matches uh, and, and the kind of the psychology of what an opening match is to a wrestling card, and also before we kind of talk about the death of Dirty Dick Slater and just kind of want to get your memories of Dick Slater, we are recording this in real time on Tuesday, and obviously Monday was the big news of Roman Reigns, and I saw you post something on Twitter, Shane, and, and just I want to get your yeah. comments uh, if you want to share it today, because obviously the wrestling world came out in droves and shared their support. And obviously the, the heartbreaking story of Roman Reigns, who was secretly battling leukemia and unfortunately coming back uh, seemingly, I guess, aggressively that he's going to be leaving television for quite some time. Uh, just kind of share your thoughts. And what you wrote on Twitter was very nice today. I just wanted to kind of get it out on the airwaves for the listeners today. 
Well, you know, uh, for our business, uh, for the, for the fans and, and people from outside of our business, uh, at its basic, most basal level, it's a fraternity, you know, and, and we are a brotherhood, you know, it's, uh, you know, why we colloquially call each other brother, you know, hey, hey bro, you know, the reason being because we're going to the ring, uh, night after night, week after week, month after month, putting our bodies in each other's hands, uh, and we have to trust each other. Uh, to do that, you've got to get to know these people. Now, although I, I've never uh, gotten to know Roman Reigns, I obviously a, a bit younger than me, uh, I do know the family, uh, the, the Simone family very well. Uh, I wouldn't wish somebody like this on my worst enemy, uh, you know, but to see that he's handling with such grace, uh, I think is really cool. And the fact that he wanted to go public with it, uh, to sort of advocate for it, uh, I, I think is really cool because, you know, with, you know, the HIPAA laws and everything, we're, we're all so versed in keeping our, our, uh, uh, our health private, you know, keeping that to ourselves. And, you know, being in a public situation like Roman is, uh, there's people out there and probably a lot of young kids, especially that look up to him, uh, that are in the same situation uh, that can garner strength from that. So, you know, to me, that's an incredibly cool thing to do. Uh, but I do wish him every bit of the best. I, I, you know, I hope he has a fast recovery, uh, that he handles the protocol well. Uh, I, you know, not that I have any personal experience, but I, I, I'm sure that, you know, any kind of anti-cancer protocol must be tough. And, uh, because of that, like I guess I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, let alone one of my brothers. So, uh, I wish him all the best. Uh, and, you know, like I said in, the, in my tweet today, I got speed in his recovery and, uh, you know, what a hell of a return he's going to have, huh? You know, once he beats cancer's ass again. Uh, to come back, uh, you know, he's going to be one hell of a baby face for uh, the WWE. And I look forward to seeing that. So best of luck to him, man, from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, he seemingly finally found the groove after these past few years where WWE has been pushing him down the throats of the fans and the fans have just completely uh, just not taken to him and booed him out of the building and just were not accepting what WWE was offering it seems like for the first time in this entire championship run of his, he was finally turning the corner, uh, at least from my perspective, from the outside perspective. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking to see, obviously, nothing but the best and, and nothing but well wishes from everybody in the wrestling industry for Roman Reigns. Like you said, a speedy recovery. And when he comes back, he's going to be whooping ass better than ever. I'm sure he's even going to look more impressive than he does now because he's a guy that when you look at the template for a wrestler, Roman Reigns is pretty much, uh, there's not many that look like him anymore. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. It's like the, if there was a cookie cutter for wrestlers, right, that would, it would be the Roman Reigns look, uh, you know, but the, you know, just a little sidebar on the family, you know, off uh, the the rock, uh, Sammy, uh, uh, you know, there's all the guys, uh, in that family, uh, you know, I've worked with so many of them over the years, learned so much from working with them. Uh, always top-notch quality people, and uh, I'm sure Roman uh, is cut from that same cloth. So uh, he's got a strong family unit around him, no doubt, uh, and you know, looking forward to him making a, a speedy recovery and coming back and seeing what what's in the next chapter for Roman Reigns. 
Absolutely. Yeah, very well said. And uh, Godspeed, Roman. Hope uh, hope you get back on the right track. So with that being said, just wanted to get that out of the way because that is just an absolutely uh, encompassing news story in the wrestling business. And uh, everything else aside, I'm sure we'll be able to touch back to the Saudi Arabia nonsense in the next few weeks. And there's a couple of stories coming out of Impact that I wanted to kind of hit in the next few weeks. But um, we also got to talk about the death of Dirty Dick Slater. Earlier this week, or excuse me, late last week, uh, passing away at 67 years old. Uh, John was able to go and dig out some of the matches that you had with Dirty Dick Slater. Obviously, another one of these guys. Again, we talk about breaking the mold. You're not going to see any more coming like Dick Slater <laughs> coming down the pike at all. So if you can, share some memories about the uh, the Rebel, if you can. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll go into some of the matches you guys had afterwards. Well, he... Uh, just to start you know, another sad passing, right? I mean, 67, I think is, is, is way, way too young today. You know, right. I, you know, 67, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago might've been old today. 67 is like the new 50, you know? So, uh, you know, sad to hear that I'd heard, I've not been able to get confirmation, but I'd heard that he was in a, a nursing home after a car accident a few years ago. Uh, I hadn't seen Dick around and I hadn't heard anything about him until his passing. Um, as a young guy coming into the dressing room in uh, UWF, uh, Dick was one of the, you know, the elder statesmen, if you will, in the dressing room. He was one of the established guys, uh, you know, tough as nails, you know, very intimidating, not because of the way he carried himself or the way he portrayed himself intimidating because you know his reputation preceded him and uh you know i i always got along very well with dick uh you know every anytime i worked with him like dominic taught me was all ears you know listened and followed um you know dick was always a solid performer you know if you put dick slater in the ring versus fill in the blank you know it was going to be a solid match that you could put on the card and, and and hold the card together uh, you know, he was, uh, he was a no bullshit type of guy. You know, he, he wasn't the kind of guy to sit there and get into the dressing room, uh, bitch sessions. Uh, you know, Dick was very quiet, you know, he would sort of sit off on his own in the corner and take care of business and, and, uh, you know, do what he had to do and, you know, get ready for his matches. Uh, it was not a social butterfly at all. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean like he was, you know, like standoffish or nose in the air, nothing like that. Uh, just, you know, it was all business. You know, he'd get in there, open his, his you know, put a, you know, light a cigarette and open his bag and get dressed and, and get ready to go to the ring. A man of very few words. Uh, but I learned an awful lot from working with Dick Slater and uh, I was saddened to hear of his passing. You know, it, unfortunately, as we get up, it, you know, after, you know, so many decades in this business, you know, for those guys uh, that were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years older than me, uh, we've seen so many of them passing lately. And it's uh, just a sad reminder that, you know, mortality gets all of us. And, uh, you know, like I said to somebody that I, a friend of mine tweeted me uh, early or texted me, I should say, early that morning about his passing. That's how I learned of Dick's passing. And, and I said, you know, sad, just, uh, I, I, another one gone. You know, it's, uh, like you said a, a second ago, there will never be another Dirty Dick Slater. Uh, 
whether gimmick or shoot, uh, there will never be another guy like that in the business. You know, I remember seeing him for the first time in the WWF and his very, very short-lived WWF tenure where he was the babyface rebel Dick Slater, which, you know, as you go on and you become a, a more seasoned fan, you get to see that, you know, that was not dirty Dick Slater. The rebel Dick Slater was, uh, you know, this different uh, form of the Dick Slater persona, I guess, that uh, the WWF wanted to spin on it. But when you go through what he did in his career, and he was in Championship Wrestling from Florida, and he was in Georgia, and he was in Mid-Atlantic, and he was in WCW, and he was in Mid-South, and he was in the AWA, and he was in the WWF. That's the definition of a journeyman. But I, I was going to ask you, who did he kind of hang around with? And you're saying he was an isolationist some somewhat. Is that why he was able to hop from territory to territory, do you think? He really didn't have any firm ties or any maybe playing to some of these politics that went on in some of these organizations. Well, he, I don't. I don't mean to imply he didn't have friends. Uh, yeah, he was real close with, uh, you know, like DiBiase and Dusty and uh, like that. Those, that group of guys. Uh, but he, he, he definitely, at least from my purview, I never saw him uh, uh, embarking on the political bullshit. You know, it was uh, Dicky always sort of seemed an island unto himself, Switzerland. And uh, you know, that's you know, like you said, the definition of a journeyman. Uh, but in our business, what that means is that that's a guy that's talented enough to go from this place to this place, to that place, to that place, uh, because he can transcend, you know, the textual differences of say an NWA to a WCW to a WWF to an ECW. Uh, you know, he was the type of guy that could very seamlessly, you know, hop around from place to place and fit right into the texture of whatever that company was. Uh, just another testament to, to, you know, his ability to sort of morph into that. Uh, it's a rare guy in the business that can do that. You know, if you think of most guys, uh, most wrestlers, when they go to company A, company B, company C, pretty much the same, same guy, uh, you know, the same character, maybe some minor differences uh, added in, uh, unless you're uh, like a star in NXT and going to the WWE today and they you know, turn you completely black and white, uh, uh, negative image of whatever, or something completely from left field. But, you know, Dick Slater was able to very seamlessly step in, uh, out of one promotion and into the next and somehow seem fresh when he got there. Uh, it's a, it's a rare quality. Yeah. No, very cool. And I, you love that about those territory days is when he would pop up in another territory. And that's always, uh, I love that. I just, I love the, the, the debut in the new territory of any guy. It's always the most exciting, uh, you know, more memorable appearances. But got to welcome in JP now. And JP went to work down in the crack JP lab, broke out the history books, <laughs> combed through the results, and came up with some matches that you did have against Dirty Dick Slater. So, JP, why don't you run down some of these uh, illustrious matches that the franchise had throughout his career with the, uh, with the Dirty One, the Rebel Dick Slater? I did find some matches in WCW, but I'm just curious before I get into them. Shane, did you ever wrestle him in the UWF? Because obviously you guys were in the same locker room at the same time. Was there ever any point you guys crossed paths in the ring? Uh, my guess is yeah, because of you know the, the seven night a week type of schedule that we ran back then. Um, but I don't believe I had any kind of angle with him there. If so, it was probably a TV taping uh, or a uh, you know a dark uh dark match you know a house show match uh 
uh, but no, no angle or anything with them there. But yeah, there were, and I've, I've probably told the story here before, uh, you know, in the UWF, uh, the, the, you know, that stuck with me all these years indelibly, uh, you know, Pez Wally had been working with this younger kid that was working his name. So remain nameless. And, uh, you know, Bill Watts, you know, I've often talked about his, his imposing coaching style, you know, the yelling and screaming and intimidation. Uh, but it was all targeted. It wasn't just yelling and screaming. It was getting in your face to try to get you to undo the, the things that you were screwed up out there. And, uh, this young wrestler, uh, who was about my age, maybe a very little bit older had been there for a while before I got there, maybe six months before I got there. And, uh, I noticed Bill, you know, getting on him after his matches. He's working with Pez Wally, getting on him after his matches uh, because of some things that he was doing incorrectly in the ring. And on the third or fourth night, I can't remember exactly, it was after a couple nights, uh, the kid had gone to the ring and Pez is at the curtain ready to go through. And Bill sort of looks around the dressing room and he taps Pez on the leg and he says, you know, because Pez is up on the riser. He said, uh, Pez took the night off and he looks around and he sees Dickie and he calls Dick Slater over and he said, uh, I want to go out there and, uh, teach this kid a lesson. And if he comes back with teeth in his face, you're fired. <laughs> and, uh, and Dick went out there and did what Bill, what his boss told him to do. Uh, you know, which to a young kid like me in the dressing room, greener than goose shit was very intimidating, you know, but it also uh, <laughs> forced me to stay laser focused on my craft, uh, you know, because of that. I mean, those were, you know, things that you see as a young guy that, you know, leave a, leave a mark, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, that's what happens when you screw up. Well then damn, I'm not going to screw up. I'm going to try not to. Uh, but you know, Dick, uh, and I don't mean that in any way to kind of like, you know, be smart with Dick. I, it was, you know, Dick was completely a professional. And, you know, as, as independent contractors, uh, a guy like Dick in that position has a choice. He can go out there and do what his boss tells him to do or come back and maybe be fired or certainly be in a lesser position because he didn't uh, fulfill the, the promoter, the booker's wishes. <clears throat> and so he did what he had to do to keep food on his family's table. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's right, not advocating it. But, uh, and, and like I said, certainly not trying to be smart Dick for that. Uh, but you know, Dick was ever the professional and from my witnessing him and his career, what my career mirrored his, uh, I never saw Dick lazy. I never saw Dick take the, uh, you know, the shortest path, the shortest route. Uh, Dick always went out there and gave, you know, gave everything he had, which, you know, was, was pretty damn believable in the ring. Now, were you there for the infamous Dick Slater Sting backstage fight, if you will, the time that Slater beat up Sting backstage? Were you a part of that, or were you in the locker room at that time? uh, I was in the locker room at that time. I was not part of it, but I I had been in the bathroom. Sting was in the bathroom painting his face, and I had gone in, and as I was leaving the bathroom, I opened the door at the same time Dick was pushing the door open. And, uh, so we crossed paths in the doorway and, you know, as I got out into the hallway, I heard, you know, what sounded like 
you know, quick cracks or something. And, you know, Dick came out and, you know, with the same look on his face, like he did walking in, you know, like, damn, just wanted to take a piss, you know? And, uh, he, he walked out, he didn't walk out saying, Hey, I just whooped that guy's ass. You know, nothing, it was nothing like that. It was just in, bap, 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 flush, walked back out. Like, <laughs> like he was taking the garbage out, you know, it, it was, uh, uh, unbeknownst to me at that time, uh, the rumor was that, uh, you know, Sting had slept with, uh, with Dark Journey and, uh, you know, and, and Dickie had, had found out about it and Dick was, I, I, apparently dating, uh, Dark Journey. Who knew? So it was, uh, it was just the, the lessons of a young franchise, you know, the things that I went to <laughs> as a young kid in the dresser was, it wasn't a typical nine-to-five job. <laughs> hmm. Yes, as the story goes, I guess, uh, obviously, Slater was with Dark Journey at the time. Sting slept with Dark Journey, and then Slater kind of, uh, you know, gave him a bit of a receipt and, and uh, beat him up a little bit. So, Dick Slater, legitimately a tough guy you wouldn't want to mess with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, definitely a, a street-tough dude. You know, and, you know, from what I understand, you know, from Paul Orndorff, he had a hell of an, an amateur background, too. You know, so and if you go back and there, you know, although, you know, Dirty Dick Slater's gimmick was sort of something different. If you go back and watch, especially some of those earlier matches in his career, like early, like a, the early rise of, of, of Dick Slater, uh, you'll see him doing some pretty damned accomplished uh, moves and chaining and, uh you know, could certainly hold his own, and you know, from that, you know, uh, you you could tell that there was definitely an amateur background there. You know, some some connection to amateur wrestling. I found some WCW matches from 1992. Basically, he worked with them almost four days in a row, pretty much. I mean, for the most part, mostly house shows, and one, I guess, TV match really. But it was you and Z-Man versus Slater. And Greg Valentine. This was basically October of 1992. Um, then it was you and Eric Watts against Slater and Valentine. Then it's you versus Dick Slater one on one. And then it's finally you and Bagwell versus Slater and Valentine. Do you have any memories of wrestling Dick Slater in WCW, whether it be a tag match or even a one on one encounter? I do. I, I don't have specific recollections uh, of, of the tag matches other than just you telling me that, like, you know, me, Buff, me, uh, Eric, uh, uh, me and Z-Man, you could, from just saying that, you could tell that the company was obviously trying to uh, see if Dick and, and Greg had some kind of chemistry with their, their you know, potential push coming for that tag team, uh, because clearly on my side of the equation, it was you know, sort of, uh, the, uh, partner du jour, uh, you know, so they, they clearly were looking at, at Greg and, and, uh, uh Dick. Uh, I do have very specific recollections of, uh, of wrestling, uh, Dick on, uh, on one of the, uh, uh, center stage tapings. Uh, you know, he, you know, completely unlike today, you didn't go and sit and say, okay, Dick, what do you want to do? How about if we lock up and you take my arm and I'll take yours and then I'll do 26 backflips and you do your 24 backflips. Uh, there was none of that. You know, is there, you know, Hey Dick, what do you, you know, what do you want to do for a finish? 
You know, that, that was the kind of the conversation you had and you'd go to the ring and, you know, everything you did was, was ad libbed uh, on the fly. And, you know, if, if as a young baby face, you got a little bit too eager and started, you know, getting a little too full of yourself, uh, you know, a, a seasoned heel like Dick Slater would cut you right down and keep the heat. Uh, and also knew where it was time with those TV cameras rolling to, to let this young, uh, snot nosed kid free it up a bit, you know, and shine a bit. So, uh, you know, it was every night was, you know, although you didn't realize it at the time, looking back every one of those nights as, uh, as, uh, uneventful as they were uneventful in the sense that there was no big title on the line there was no big angle being shot uh it was a a match that uh, wcw wanted to put on to uh, uh to have a solid match and i'm sure no doubt to teach this young kid shane douglas uh our business and uh you know dick was uh always professional in that way you know dick would go out and he'd, he'd you know don't don't mistake what i'm telling you he'd get his stuff in you know, and, and uh, Dick could be a little snug in the ring, which, you know, was preparing me later for ECW, I guess. Uh, but I never, I, that that part of it, I, I if it's a choice of being too snug or too loose, I'd much rather have too snug uh, because of the look of the product and, uh, you know, especially from a babyface point of view, when you're selling, you know, if something is too light, uh, it's very difficult to sell unless you have eyes on move, you know? So if you're, you know, selling away from the heel and they hit you with something that feels, you know, way too light, it's, it's really difficult to to sell it properly. Uh, and you didn't have that problem with Dick. Now, as far as, you know, you're saying you remember one-on-one matches or tag matches and things like that. And, you know, you liked his style and you like working with him. When you see, you know, whether it be on the blackboard or whatever in the back, that you're working with a guy like Dick Slater or even, you know, Greg Valentine in a tag match or things like that, are you immediately thinking, like, this is going to be uh, stiff, i got to get ready for tonight? Like, what's what's the thought process kind of going in? Well, the thought process with guys like that, especially once you got to know them, was like, this is going to be a night off. You know, I mean, this is going to be stealing money because – uh, you know, especially like those two names you mentioned, Greg Ballantyne and Dick Slater, uh, they were both so well versed at, at their craft and they were both professionals. You know, they, uh, you know, there, there were times that like I would see Dick would be, uh, you know, maybe not quite having the day that, you know, having a shit day, we'll put it that way. And, you know, you could tell, like, there was a, you know, there was, like, a sort of vibe that emanated off of it. He knew, like, to give him his, his distance and space. But uh, he never, at least with me in the ring, he never, ever went in the ring and took that out on me in the ring. Uh, you know, Dick was always professional in that sense. And, and like I said, you know, certainly was snug, uh, but never, you know, went to the ring and just, you know, took liberties and, 
you know, or, or thank God try to knock my teeth out. Hey, let's pause for one second and remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Eat Your Coffee is a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students that pioneered a new category in caffeinated natural snacks. The company's first product line, Eat Your Coffee Bars, are a date-based snack bar caffeinated with fair trade coffee, which would be comparable to one cup, and made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. Eat Your Coffee snack bars are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, 70% organic, and available in three delicious flavors, including fudgy mocha latte, salted caramel macchiato, and peanut butter mocha, my personal favorite. Now that is an energizing combination because they are on a mission to help get people energized with naturally caffeinated snacks made with real, ethically sourced ingredients. So if you want more information, head on over to www.eatyour.coffee, as well as follow them on Instagram, follow them on Facebook, follow them on Pinterest, and follow them on Twitter, and get all the information on how you can energize the moment with eat your coffee bars i know also on the run sheet by chad he did pretty much highlight this opening match concept and he was pretty much obsessed with it all weekend he kept talking about opening matches opening matches (laughs) so when he tweeted out last uh, basically last friday tweeted out as a show topic and can kind of conceive this i know he was obsessed with Pat Tanaka at this point, for obvious reasons. He's thinking highly of Pat Tanaka, who was in a lot of opening matches. But besides that, they received a great bunch of feedback from the fans on the good old Twitter machine. Uh, a lot of good stuff from the listeners. Got some emails, got some Facebook uh, messages. A lot of great stuff about some of the best opening matches in wrestling history. So, mm. Shane, what are your thoughts on the opening match? Is it a lot of pressure? Because... In kind of coinciding with this, I did see somebody say something to Cody Rhodes about an opening match, and he was saying that that is a good thing. They, you know, they want you to set the pace of the show. There might be a little extra pressure on you because you're the first one that goes out there. You kind of got to make sure everything is kind of stays upbeat and you keep the show rolling, and you kind of get the crowd into it, so to speak. Uh, absolutely, uh, it, it, it it definitely Cody is nail right in the head. It sets the tone for the night. So you go out and shit the bed in that first match. Uh, you know, if you go out there and shit the bed, uh, you know, the crowd, look at it from the crowd standpoint, you know, they've paid their money, especially back then the house is either sold out or damn full. There's an energy in the building and now the lights go down. It's like the start of a concert, right? Everybody's excited. You go out there and shit the bed in that first match. And it's very, very possible that it's going to, you know, turn the, the, the entire night sour. Uh, you know, it's, you know, later match, the second, third match might have to pick up some slack in that case to try to pull it back. But it's a very, very important match in that sense. But it's also a match that has little expectation from, from the office point of view. And what I mean by that is they're not expecting to go out there. And, and I see on these shows today and it just makes zero sense to me. Uh, they go out and they'll hit every move they know twice in that first match. Uh, well, if, if you'd have done that back then, uh, you'd have been in the ring tomorrow night, and instead of your opponent, Dick Slater would have walked with the curtain, and you'd pretty much know it was coming uh, because the, the show is supposed to build. You know, so there's supposed to be a you know ever increasing importance, ever increasing excitement as the match. Uh, as the matches go to second, third, fourth, fifth, 
to the semi-main, which was, you know, typically right before the intermission. Uh, and then coming back from that, and the first match after intermission, of course, popcorn uh, was just to get people back into their seats. Uh, it was, you know, considered a throwaway uh, match from the, from the company's point of view, from, from every major promotion that I work for. Uh, but that opening match is a very important match in the sense that it does set the tone for the night, and that's the expectation from the company. Uh, for you to get out there, get the crowd into their seats, get them excited, let them know they're getting ready to see one hell of a damn great show tonight. And, uh, you know, again, not meant for you to go out there and display every move, you know, and, you know, get on the mic and do everything else. It's just literally, here's opponent A, here's opponent B. Welcome to the show, everybody. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, and into the match. Uh, you know, so it does set the tone. The great part about being in the opening match is aside from the pressure, uh, once you get into that and you, if you and your opponent are comfortable and say you're going around the loop in that spot, uh, you know, once you get past that uh, pressure of being in that position and, and, and then comfortable with your opponent, uh, you're done. You know, 7.35, you know, 7.40 or 8.05, 8.10, you're done, showered, and ready to go out and have fun uh, because, you know, your, your night's over. Uh, so... You know, most people, uh, when they're younger in the business, abhor the opening spot because they yearn for the for the main event. Once you've been in the main event for any any period of time, you yearn to get on that opening match so you can get the hell out of there and get back to your room and get to bed or uh, get to the uh, to the club and have a few drinks, uh, whatever. But you know, it's it's uh, you know, it, you know, every to be to be honest, every match on the card is important. Uh, like I said, popcorn's a throwaway, throwaway from the company's point of view, but they sure as hell don't want you to go out there and shit the bed. Uh, but the opening match, like, like you said, Cody Rhodes had mentioned, sets the tone for the night. So there is a, a higher expectation from the promotion on that match to make sure that that match delivers the goods. It's not coincidental that oftentimes in that opening match, you'll see uh, two guys, whether it's two younger guys or two uh, mid-card guys or even sometimes maybe upper-card uh, upper guys, uh, depending on what they expect to get out of that match and how important that particular card is. Uh, it's, it's not coincidence that you'll typically see the promotion put uh, a couple of guys in that match or a couple of ladies in that match, a couple of girls in that match, that they have... Uh, either a lot of expectation for or a lot of trust in because they, they know they're going to be able to go out and deliver those goods. Did you prefer ever? I know you said, <coughs> excuse me, you know, later on, maybe you wanted to get out of there or whatever, but did you, did you ever actually prefer or, or say to the book or promoter, hey, uh, you know, can I go on first or can we go on first or yeah. you know, can we start the night? Yeah, when I wrestled Chris Jetty in the ECW arena uh, for the ECW world title, uh, Paul called me over, and uh, I forget if somebody was sick, hurt, not there, uh, but he said, I don't, I don't have anybody for you to wrestle. And I'm, I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm the world champion. You've know, you got to have me on the card, especially in the ECW arena. So, so I looked around the dressing room, and the first person I saw that was dressed over in the corner was Chris Jetty. And I said, give me Chris Chetty and let me go out in the opening match. There's no fucking way. 
I said, Paul, this will work. I, it, it was just off the wall enough. The world champion in an opening match against a, you know, a young new kid. Uh, the, the, you know, ECW was like, you had to always stay one step ahead of what the fans thought you were going to give them. So if the fans thought you were going to go left and you knew that, then you had to go right. Uh, so being that that was such an awkward cattywampus match, you know, the world champion in the opening match against this young guy, the fans, I think at least a, a good portion of them are thinking, this is so off the wall. Maybe they're going to drop the belt to that kid. just as a surprise. And sure enough, that was the way that, that the crowd went. Uh, Chris was nervous as shit. He was so nervous. And I told him, I said, you know, just go out there and follow my lead. And, you know, when it's time for you to fire up, if you hear crickets, I don't care. You, you, you pretend like you're hearing 50,000 people roar. And I said, the only thing, the only pressure you're going to have is when you hit that double top rope moonsault, you cannot miss that top rope moonsault. You must hit that move. And, uh, he, we went out and as I'm laying there, you know, for him to hit that, the, 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 Double top rope uh, moonsault. You know, I'm nervous for him. I mean, please don't miss it. Please don't miss it. Please don't miss it. Uh, and when he hit it and hit it perfectly, you know, from that point, it was perfunctory, you know, it just total elementary. Kick out on two and nine tenths, and you're going to get a hell of a pop from the crowd. And then wherever we went from that point, we had. Them. And, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I asked for that. And, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure just knowing my mentality at the time, it wasn't so I could get on first and get out of the building. Uh, cause we probably had promos to do all night anyway. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure my reasoning was put, put that in the main event spot. A, the fans will be disappointed, not on anything on Chris's part, but because Chris was a new kid, but put that in the first match. And it's just awkward enough, just left field enough that the fans will try to outthink it. And they sure, sure, sure enough did. And Wrestle Palooza '97, you and Chetty for the TV title led off the show, which is kind of interesting. That you know, one of their big guys leading off the show, and that great story you just had of basically kind of shocking the crowd and doing things like that. Do you think that it's good to have a, a champion lead off the show? like that or you know, maybe in that instance yes but do you think for the most part it, it is or do you think the the you know the champion probably should be in the main event well you know by definition the champion should be in the main event but if you don't have an opponent for uh the, the champion then what do you do with him you just put him out there for a promo do you uh put him out there against just anybody in the main event uh you know, to me, a main event isn't just because of champions in it. The main event is a match that's built on the caliber of a main event. So to me, it, it made so much more sense to go out there in that opening match. Let me get on the mic and run my mouth and, you know, berate the company because there's no opponent for me, you know, send somebody down. And of course, you know, the fans, as soon as they see him come to the curtain, they go, oh, this kid's going to get his ass handed to him, right? And then, you know, three, four, five minutes later, he's bumping the franchise around the ring. Uh, you know, I, 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 I dare say I'd help build Chris. Uh, you know, there, you know, today we've gotten to this mindset of if somebody loses the match, 
that's it. That means they're a job guy. They can't ever, you know, win again. Uh, there's only ever been one uh, undefeated NFL champion, right? So, uh, you know, it's very possible and plausible that you can lose and still still be a champion. Um, but that's where, you know, sports entertainment has taken our business today. So back then, my reasoning was always trying to stay one step ahead of what the fans were expecting. And I think in that match, their first thought was, oh, God, Chris Chase is going to get his ass handed to him. And then in, in, in short order, he's bumping the world champion around and looking pretty damn good. Uh, at that point, it doesn't matter if that kid won or lost. Uh, you know, certainly winning would have been a huge boon for him, but losing after bumping the world champion around, who just ran his mouth and got his ass handed to him, and was luckily able to pull it out at the end. Uh, in the business vernacular, I made him before I took him. In the perfect scenario, in, in the perfect world, what makes a good opening match? I know. There, there are different elements that you mentioned, but just perfect scenario. What would you think? Maybe not kind of going overboard and, and doing all the moves. Like, what's the perfect scenario for the for the opening contest? Two two uh, uh, wrestlers that can deliver. Uh, typically, a strong heel and a, and, a, and a baby face that can hold shine. Uh, two, both of them knowing what that role is. To not go out there and hit every move under the sun three times, and and then do everybody else's finish before you go into your own. Uh, it's to go out there and deliver a good solid eight to twelve minutes uh, tops, and get in there, hit hit it, deliver the goods, and get out, and leave the fans with a really good taste in their mouth, uh, so that they know that that was a damn good match, just a nice little appetizer. Now let's move on to the entrees. Would you ever get mad in ECW when some of the opening matches would have tables and chairs and they would kind of do high and spots? color? Yeah. Kind of would... Yep. Yeah. Didn't it, really fit an infuriated. opening match, right? Exactly. You know, because, you know, what back then, you know, ECW, uh, you know, the, the cards were always excruciatingly long. Uh, you know, the fans held their energy the entire time, but, uh, you know, it was rare that I would go to the ring in the main event before midnight. Uh, and I believe our shows started at either seven or seven thirty then. So they were, they were really long shows. Um, but that was complete with, you know, promos and in rings and, uh, you know, angles, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, when you'd go out there and you're, you're not going on, you know, till, you know, the next five hours or four hours from now. And the opening match is out there breaking tables, swinging chairs, getting color, getting on the microphone and fucking this and fucking that. Uh, what is there left for the semi-main event, for the main event, and for the up-card matches to do if you've done everything in the opening match? Um, again, had you done that when I was a kid in the business – You'd have seen Dirty Dick Slater walk into the curtain the next night, and uh, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have done it again. Um, you know, it's just it's just a, a lack of understanding of our business. You know, there's sometimes uh, when you jog, and there's sometimes when you sprint. You know, and and you have to know what your position is in order to be able to deliver what what that position is. 
You know, not every night is a Shane Douglas night. It's not if if Shane Douglas is the opening match, it doesn't mean that Shane Douglas has the spotlight and that whole card revolves around Shane Douglas. If I'm the opening match, Shane Douglas is a guy on that card. Right. Definitely uh, makes perfect sense to me. Now, the best opening contest I've ever seen was actually at WrestleMania 10, Bret Hart versus Owen Hart. I mean, you could list a, a million other matches, and I will agree they're great, but I don't think anything is ever going to top that match as far as being the best opening contest I've ever seen. Shane, what's the best opening match you've ever seen? Wow. <laughs> God, it goes, you know, uh, Hmm. Off the top of my head, I, you know, I, there's none that stand out, especially, you know, because, you know, you, you don't, you're not in, you don't think in terms when you're watching a card to say, okay, this match is going to really stick in my head. Uh, that's a head scratcher. You know, I, I, I don't think in, in terms of that, because usually when, especially when you're on main event or semi-main, you're not paying attention to the earlier cards. Uh you know, but uh, I'm familiar with the match that you said with Brett and Owen, and and the, the thing was, I, although I thought they overdid it a bit for an opening match, uh, you, you could tell they were both obviously uh, very well versed in each other's uh, skill set and well versed in shining each other. You know, knowing what to do, how how to set things up for the opponent. Uh, Dominic, whenever Mick and I were uh, at Dominic's school, you know, Dominic would often run the shows. Uh, you know, several times a month and Mick and I were always the opening match. And, uh, and the, you know, the reason being is, you know, Dominic will later tell me that, you know, we were his two top students and he knew that we could go out there and, you know, set the pace for that show and, 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 you know, give, deliver the goods. And the thing for me, my memories of Mick in those opening matches was that he was damn good at getting heat uh, of course, I was a young white meat babyface at that time. He was damn good at getting heat, uh, damn good at shining himself, you know, doing his elbow off the apron and that sort of thing. But also, damn good at shining me, you know, and then, you know, leading, you know, the match into positions to set me up so that I could hit my things. And, uh, you know, that to me is a sign, a mark of, of, of you know, the, a great worker, you know, somebody can do that in the opening match, especially as young as we were. Um, but opening matches, as far as like off the top of my head, you know, if, I, if you went back and told me a specific card and what the match was, I could tell you, you know, what my recollections of it were, but you know, it's, it's not typical to think of them, uh, of cards and thinking like, what was the opening match? You know, and what John was kind of saying from the start here as to why this was fresh in my brain is because we had, Pat Tanaka and, and Paul Diamond on our show, the two-man power trip, in the last few weeks. And when you think about the two of them as a team in the WWF, you think about that Orient Express team, and we beat it into the ground talking to both of them, but they had the opening match at Royal Rumble 1991 against the Rockers, which was, at that time, you weren't seeing yeah. that anywhere else. It was a high-octane match. It was fast-paced. And what I loved, yeah. what Pat Tanaka shared with us, is that that match was only supposed to be three minutes. And they had to stretch it to, they had to stretch to thirty minutes, and they found out just minutes before they were going out that they had to now add twenty seven minutes into the middle of the match, 
And when you think about opening matches on cards, and especially a show like the Royal Rumble, which is known for the battle royal aspect of it, that match is thought of as one of the best in the history of the entire pay-per-view, which is over 30 years now. So that's kind of why this was kind of fresh in my brain, was because of that match. Do you recall that match uh, at that time? I, I don't, but I'm curious. Why were they... Why did it go from three to twenty to thirty minutes? John, did he give us that reason why, or did he just say they just needed to stretch the time? I, I don't remember him giving us a specific reason. No, he never really gave a reason. He just assumed that they were going to keep it to the three minutes they were, I guess, planning on doing, or the short match they were planning on it. For whatever reason, he didn't mention if there was another match got next, or if they were going to have the rumble go a little bit shorter. He didn't even mention it, but uh, I'm kind of glad that the match did get extended because it's awesome. Yeah. The, you know, the, those guys, you know, Tanaka and diamond, you know, of course they were together before the Orient express and, you know, in the AWA with, uh, uh, the rockers at the same time as the rockers, you know, they, they had, you know, I mean, obviously you got four guys that they could go, uh, for uh, guys that were well versed in their craft, you know, I was always a, you know, a real fan of Tanaka's, you know, because he, you know, being a smaller guy like that was, you know, really able to ramp it up, you know, and and you know, but when he'd start taking those snap bumps that he would take, uh, you know, hit it and right back up and feeding, uh, you know, it was uh, you know just really something special to watch. Those guys had great chemistry. You know, the four of them, because of their, you know, I can, uh, you know, I was never in the AWA, but I'm guessing that much like any other uh, promotion, they were on the road quite a bit and, you know, running town A to town, B to town C and working, you know, with each other on, on the same nights. Uh, and, you know, back then again, like I said earlier about, like with Dick Slater, you know, you didn't go in the back and say, okay, uh, let's do the same match tonight and tomorrow and the next night and for the next three weeks is the exact same match. Uh, you would call it differently in the in the ring each night. There may be, you know, one or two uh, similar spots uh, as there was yesterday or the day before. But typically, that match was being called in the ring, you know, on the fly, and and uh, that that's what keeps it interesting to you as a performer. But then when you have you know two guys like for Tanaka and Diamond, you know, having uh, Shawn Michaels or Marty Jannetty standing across the ring. Uh, you know, it's a pretty sweet position to be in because the four of you can deliver and the chemistry between those two teams was was always there. I'm going to run down a couple of the matches that were sent in by the uh, the fans via Twitter, but funny enough, I, I, I got to throw this out here because I just watched it as we were preparing for the Tanaka interview. But uh, <laughs> you and young Mark Thomas taking on uh, Sato, and Tanaka, one of your first matches back in the WWF in 1990, <laughs> Sato literally kicks the <laughs> shit out of Mark Thomas's head to the fact that when you came in and checked on him afterwards, I, I thought that you were going to have to literally carry this guy to the back because Sato <laughs> literally I th- almost kicked his head off his shoulders. That's how stiff that kick looked. <laughs> I'll go back and watch that, man. <laughs> I wonder, if, did the kid mess something up in the match? I, I don't know. You were barely in the match. He worked basically the whole entire thing, and um, uh, Tanaka hit him with that that you know flying snap uh, forearm, whatever that setup move was, and then Sato would come in, hit him with the tiger. Uh, first, it was like a you know like a crescent kick, and then a, a tiger bomb. 
but he literally he kicked the shit out of Mark Thomas's head, and it was something like you watch it in slow motion, and you just like, ooh, jeez, <laughs> one of the one of those like skin crawling uh, kicks. It was pretty, uh, it's pretty good. I'll send you that match so you can check it out. It's a good one. Yeah, please, please, I'd love to see it. All right, so here's some of the matches that people sent in uh, via the Twitter poll, which I'm, I, it caught me by surprise. Like John was saying, it was I was very shocked at the outpouring. Uh, of people that were sharing some of these matches uh, that they did. So let's look at a couple here. You got Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio opening up WrestleMania 21. Uh, the New Foundation versus, hey, the Orient Express again, Royal Rumble 92. Uh, Brett versus Owen, like John mentioned, Rockers versus Orient Express. Uh, Justin Credible versus Jerry Lynn, Heatwave 98. Brian Pillman versus yeah. Jushin Liger from Super Brawl 92. Uh, Brian Pillman versus Johnny B. Bad from Fall Brawl 95. Daniel Bryan versus Triple H from WrestleMania 30. Eddie Guerrero versus Chris Benoit, Vengeance 2003. Hakushi versus the 123 Kids, SummerSlam 95. Rey Mysterio versus Psychosis, Bash at the Beach, 90 Sticks. Uh, Stevie, I guess it's Stevie Richard versus Kid Cash, Hardcore TV, uh, 11 But then we got a couple of uh, the dudes popping up and a couple Shane Douglas matches that people were sharing on here. So you got the... <laughs> The Dudes versus Sullivan and Sawyer. You got the Dudes versus the Freebirds from Clash uh, number seven. Uh, Shane, Johnny Gunn, and the Z-Man versus Arn, Bobby Heaton, and Michael Hayes uh, from Halloween Havoc 92. We've talked about that match before on the show. And then two WWF matches. Shane Douglas versus Dino Bravo opening up MSG 7197. And the infamous Shane Douglas versus Paul Roma contest. From January twenty first, ninety one, and you know why I'm going to say it's it's infamous because it has that way awkward ending uh, with the referee fucking yeah. up uh, with the count, the six count or whatever it was. That was that is a crazy one to go back and watch. Yeah, it's uh, it, I, I it's for some reason I'm not pausing on this. I I think at the finish of that match that the the referee screwed up the the, the, the count and then counted again. And so I think at the time the thought was they'll edit that and, you know, it was, you know, on the tape and that they would edit it and, and take it out. Cause there was a lot of times in WWF, he'd go out to the ring and, you know, have the match and come back and, you know, camera didn't catch something. The sound was off, uh, a light needed changing, or they just didn't like the match. They would, hit your music and send you right back out to do the exact same match in front of that same crowd. You, you know, you talk about a dead, dead match. You know, it was like always like a real ball buster when they would pull that. Uh, uh, but that was, you know, Vince's thought process on it was, you know, he's creating a TV show, not a great wrestling match. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, Dino Bravo was, was one that I always had a tough time wrestling. He, he always seemed disinterested. Uh, you know, like he, he didn't want to, he just, I don't want to say he was lazy. It just seemed like he didn't want to go out there and work hard, you know, and uh, uh, that always made it, you know, tough working with Dino. Yeah, that was probably your last WWF match too, I would think, before you were gone because it, it looked like you, you had left and come back and then you were gone afterwards because this was in the summer 
of uh, of ninety one. So that was probably one of your uh, <laughs> one of your last. I know John was never a big Dino Bravo fan, so it's kind of funny, you know, saying that he was never randomly. John loves everybody that's ever wrestled in the history of the business, but you say Dino Bravo to John, and John was never a Dino Bravo fan. I always find that to be uh, <laughs> one of his funny little quirks. John, what's up with Dino Bravo, John? What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. I just never liked that guy. I don't know. I don't know what it is or what it was about him. I just, uh, you know, and I love, love all those old school guys. I don't know. I, I never liked him. I hate the fact that he beat Ronnie Garvin in WrestleMania. I thought that was disgraceful. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't know. I was never a fan of Dino Bravo. It's funny. It's Shane. You said that. And you always hear infamous Bret Hart stories of Bret saying he was a little bit rough to work with as well. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you ever see his matches with uh, when he and Dominic Danucci were uh, tag team champions? No, I've never seen. He, it's, you know, God, it's been so long in my own recollections of remembering those matches. But as a babyface, you know, and as the younger member of that tag team, he was sort of the one that would sell and, you know, fire up and that sort of thing. Uh, he was completely opposite of what you saw him become a heel later, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the whole, uh, you know, strongman thing and that kind of thing that Dino Bravo did later. But when he became a heel in the WWF, go back into WWF and watch uh, his matches as a babyface with Dominic. And, uh, you know, they had some great matches with, uh, 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 oh gosh, with the, the, uh, uh, I'm, I was, I'm, I'm thinking Toru Tanaka. It wasn't Toru Tanaka. It was uh, Saito and uh, Fuji. Mr. Fuji. Um, yeah, they, you know they they would have some really good matches with them, and uh, just a good, like again, go back and watch it. Was completely opposite of what what you saw Dino Bravo become later. Yeah, that's an era that I'm trying to dive a little bit into because even talking with Zabisco last weekend, and uh, we're going to be working with Bob Backlund in the beginning of December. And it's that, that's an era that obviously is right before is years before I started watching and I've seen matches pretty much the big ones, but I got to go back and dive more into the TV because it's out there. WWE has put a lot of that on the network of the old all-star wrestling and the, uh, the late night. Uh, yeah, WWF TV. So that's, uh, that's something I got to dig a little bit more into, but before we kind of get into the wrap up here and, and John hits you with some ass franchise, anything, just one more thing about, the opening match, and this is something that I know with you. You're obviously you get you were the king of the promo, especially in those ECW days. And opening up the show, is it easier to open up open up a show with a promo to kind of get the fans in a tizzy, or do you still go the traditional route of sending the good match out there to kind of get them up on their feet and you know uh, getting ready for a night full of wrestling? Well, it's, there, there's no formula to it. You know, it depends on what the promo is. If there's Something big coming later in the night, uh, you know, that you're building, uh, you know, you want to throw gasoline on that fire, uh, then a promo uh, can work at the top of the match, at the top of the card. But it's, and this is so important, especially when you compare it to what, you know, we've all seen the fans pitch about with WWE. You know, when you go out there and you have this 20, 25, 30 minute, you know, uh, odyssey. You know, at the, at the, it's always the same thing week after week after week, blah, 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 blah. You, you kill the crowd. You know, you just suck the energy right out of the crowd. Like I always say on paper, that looks like shit. Um, 
you know, it's, uh, if you're going to go and if you're going to open the show with a promo, that should be one of those 90 second, two minute, boom, 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 done out. Uh, you know, preferably in, in, in my case as a heel, you know, baby face hits the ring and chases you, you know, gets you out of whatever, just to keep the, the energy up. But the last thing you want to do is go out and do something, you know, just a promo for a promo sake, uh, because that will always, you know, kill the crowd. Um, or to go long, you know, you start going long, you can sense it, you know, you watch, you know, watch Monday night raw when they do this, you can sense the moment, uh, well now I think with WWE with them opening the show every week, Monday night raw, like this every week after week after week, the fans, as soon as they get there, they, they don't really start to get into it until the 30 minute mark, because they know they're going to come out with this long bore fest to open the show, but go back and watch any promo you want. If that promo goes over two to three minutes, five, if it's a really hot build to something, uh, once you get to that point, you'll see the audience start to get disinterested. Uh, you'll see the heads turning, looking back, uh, looking away from the camera, uh, you know, fidgeting around in the seats and stuff. There's very telltale signs you can see. And, you know, once you start to learn your craft and you're in the ring doing that promo, you might have gone out there and had, you know, 20 things you're going to talk about. As soon as you sense that crowd losing interest, wrap that bastard up and get out or you're going to you're, you're hanging yourself out to dry. It is that time again, little AFA-esque franchise, anything. And this was sent in from Travis Smith. AKA at two sweet four, two eight five via the Twitter. He says, has anyone ever found a best of our snow video? According to Mick Foley, there was never a best of our snow. LOL. <laughs> Speaking of Al snow, do you have any good stories to share about him? Yeah. I, I've, I've been a fan of Al's, you know, forever. I, the, the story that I, I always like to talk about with Al is uh, we were in crossfire wrestling and, uh, Nashville and uh, I was helping out with the office and uh, I was just either had just gone to the ring or was getting ready to go to the ring to wrestle Fit Finley and at, at some point during that match I had to walk down to the soundboard which was you know outside the dressing room area I had to walk down to the sound uh, uh, booth to give them some cues music cues and uh, you know that, the, the upcoming uh, cues that sort of thing and as I was walking back, I glanced over at the ring. You know, they, they'd been wrestling at that point for about five or ten minutes. And I glanced over at the ring just to, you know, take a look. And something happened because I, I, I remember glancing over the ring to look to see what they were doing. And then the next thing I notice is my elbows are up on the speaker and my fists are up under my chin like a little kid watching TV. I was spellbound by this match you know they were going they were doing a, a, an incredible great old school match chain you know fighting for every inch chaining in and out uh you know you know really fighting to get a hold uh, uh fighting to reverse out of that hold and uh when i realized what i was doing watching this match uh i i took stock and I stepped back because remember we've, we've always been told for the last 20 years, 
uh, the young kids, you know, young fans, they don't want to see those longer matches. They want to see that three minute match and, and get out. Uh, the, the place was pretty full. The fairgrounds was pretty full. And I would say probably a good half of them were kids. When I say kids, you know, uh, eight to 14, 15 years old in that range. Uh, everybody in that building, including all the kids that were in that building, were on the edge of their seat quietly watching and intently watching the match. Uh, they weren't hooraying and and, you know, going crazy and ooh and on. They were on the edge of their seat watching the match intently because it looked like a hell of an athletic competition between those two. Uh, you know, Al, you know, has gotten more recognition with head and, you know, doing that, that you know, that, that characterization uh, stemming from ECW, but uh, what gets lost in that, uh, you know, the, the whole head thing is that Al Snow is a damned, damned good wrestler, uh, damned accomplished, uh, easily one of the top technicians, you know, can get in there and do it. But he's also, you know, traversed and learned the, the sports entertainment side of it, you know, and, you know, not just with head, but you know, the way he utilizes head in the match and, you know, makes it make sense in the confines uh, of what, you know, sports entertainment is and whatever that, you know, uh, definition that Al Snow uh, interpretation is giving to it. Uh, but I've always been a big, big fan of Al's. I, I think he, he, he's a great wrestler, uh, you know, and he's an okay guy. <laughs> My sort of Mick Foley big, uh, you know, he and Mick were always, uh, you know, going round and round. And I think Mick had a lot of fun with him and uh, have a nice day. Yeah, he started like the uh, the Al Snow uh, joke craze, but Al Snow can do that joking on his own. He's a pretty funny guy, so it's uh, <laughs> he's uh, he can still get you with those uh, the, those kind of like blindsided jokes. But come on, you can't deny when he arrived in ECW after leaving the WWF. And that head gimmick took off, and you would go to those ECW shows, and you would look out in the crowd and see nothing but styrofoam heads. I mean, that was an unbelievable sight. Yeah. Well, when I wrestled him at the uh, uh, the Georgia pay-per-view, um, I, I shouldn't have been in the ring. I, I was so busted up at the time. My palate was fractured. I just had the elbow surgery. Uh, you know, I was in really bad shape. And the week before I had, you know, flying to an event in New Jersey, uh, they had to emergency land the plane because when the plane took off, uh, the, the cabin pressurized. And when that happened, it squeezed those two, you know, uh, plates in my palate that had cracked in half and pinched the nerve that, that that's the same nerve that causes a boxer to get knocked out when it gets you know, gets hit. So I passed out on the plane. They didn't know I was having a heart attack or what they, you know, the emergency land the plane. And I wake up, I, you know, it's, it's pretty strange and surreal thing when you, you get on a plane and you're sitting in a first class seat. And then the next thing you do, you open your eyes and you're in a hospital with IVs and you know, people poking you and prodding you with needles. Uh, pretty, you know, pretty surreal. Uh, so as a result of that, I wasn't allowed to fly anymore. I couldn't fly until, you know, until my palate healed up. And I believe it was the next week or maybe two weeks later, we were in Georgia for the pay for the ECW pay-per-view. And, uh, I had to drive down 
you know, uh, uh, the head of merchandising, Damian Farron, came and picked me up and we drove down. Uh, what we hadn't realized is that going up and down uh, Interstate 79, you're up and down mountains going through West Virginia and northern uh, North Carolina uh, and Virginia. And that up and down, you know, sort of mimic, not quite as severely, but mimic the pressurization of a, of a uh, you know, the barometric pressure, the higher and lower you went. So I was in a lot of pain when I got, by the time I got to uh, uh, Georgia, and we had two or three days before the actual event. You know, so I was in a lot of pain. I think one of the nights I had to take me to the hospital to have, a, you know, intravenous uh, pain meds put in because I was in so much pain. And the day of the show, you know, ECW didn't work the hard times. So it wasn't like, you know, if you won the third match and the first three matches were going 10 minutes, you knew you would be up in like 30, 40 minutes. Uh, you, you could be up in 30, 40 minutes. You could be up in five minutes or you could be up in an hour and a half with those three matches. It was you know, anybody's guess, however long those uh, two wrestlers wanted to go. <clears throat> the ECW doctor kept shoving these pills called Mepardine, uh, which is uh, morphine. Kept popping two of those pills in my mouth. And, you know, an hour or two later, a couple more. And uh, right before I went to the ring, I don't know how many I'd taken before that, but, you know, uh, he asked when I was up and I, he gave me a couple and, you know, five, 10 minutes later, he said, how long before you go to the ring? And I said, I, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. So he, he thought about it. You better take two more. He gave me two more of those pills. And when I went to the ring, uh, I was fine until the lights went out and the black lights went on and the styrofoam heads came out. Oh, boy. And <clears throat> I remember like my leg getting wobbly and the sound was distorted it was like you know coming through like a like a tunnel in my head it just it, you know my my you know my perception of everything was really really those, those pills were kicking in over time uh i have very little recollection memory wise of that match uh you go back and watch that match and it certainly stands up as a pretty good world title defense uh, and considering that the world champion uh, was completely out of it, has no recollection of it, didn't call a thing in that match, uh, that will show you what a special talent Al Snow is. Oh, that's homework right there, folks. Go check that out. And I'm going to bring this whole episode full circle here in a minute because that was Wrestlepalooza 98, okay, the Cobb County Civic Center in Marietta, Georgia, which was also, it was Al Snow's final ECW match before he would be going off to uh, the, the Attitude Era in the WWF. But on that show, and this is where this is all going to be full circle, folks, the ECW contingent paid tribute to the legends of the, uh, the Georgia wrestling legacy, which included the Junkyard Dogs' final television appearance in professional wrestling before he passed away. It included the mass superstar. It included Barb, Bob Armstrong and Dirty Dick Slater. So how about Dirty that? Dick Slater. We brought it. We brought it full that's circle. Right. How about that? See that? A devious plan, well laid. <laughs> Absolutely. See, riding by the seat of your pants sometimes pays off. <laughs> but hey, listen. With all that being said, please, if you're going to reach out to us, reach out on Twitter and give us some Ask Franchise Anything questions. Use the hashtag Ask Franchise Anything. And uh, please send them in. We got a lot of cool questions coming in. People wanting to know, uh, 
about Shane's history playing football. We'll maybe touch on that in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, uh, you know, some really cool questions, but please hit us up on Twitter at the three threat pod or reach out to Shane at the franchise SD or John and myself. We're at two man power trip and at wrestling pal. And I kind of want to hype up, uh, next week's episode would be episode number 70. And I, I mentioned this to John earlier today via text message, and I'm going to, uh, kind of throw it at you too. And thinking, with the theme of uh, what next week will bring to us here in the United States. It is Halloween, and we've talked about it in passing. We've never really covered it, but we're going to kind of dive a little bit into the production chain of Pro Wrestlers versus Zombies. (laughs) So, Ah, (laughs) yes, the acting chops of the franchise on full display. Uh, And if you can go back and find the episode from last year, we talked more about the relationship that you had with Rowdy Rowdy Piper throughout the filming, which I, we're yeah. going gonna to touch on it again, but we're going to talk more about the production uh, just because it's, uh, you know, it's something that it's a quirky thing. If you saw the amount of people that review pro wrestlers versus zombies on YouTube on their review shows, it's uh, it's becoming somewhat of a cult classic. So uh, we got to, we got to show it a little love Shane. Cause come on, you're the franchise. <laughs> First you had attack of the killer tomatoes. Now you've got uh, pro wrestlers versus zombies. <laughs> makes you think why didn't we think of this before it's an amazing uh, and, and, and genius plot line but we'll dive into that if you haven't seen that before go out of your way to find it, it is uh, it's a fun fun watch but for this episode we're going to wrap it up and i want to throw out a couple more plugs here i want to thank our new sponsor eat your coffee for coming on board with us eat your coffee is an amazing coffee size uh, coffee filled energy bar giving you one full cup a fair trade coffee in uh, in three delicious fa- flavors because they want you to energize the moment with their coffee bars and their uh, they're one they're, I'm not just throwing this out here because they're a sponsor they're pretty damn good energy sources if you want to pick me up and you can't get to the coffee throw a couple of those in your bag and you'll be uh, you'll be sitting riding high and looking pretty after you energize the moment with eat your coffee but also head on over to prowrestlingtees.com/franchisesd Pick up a Shane Douglas classic black and gold t-shirt. Wear that logo as we're heading into the fall season for Halloween. Why don't you go as the franchise? Let's see some clever franchise Halloween costumes out there. There might be a rumor that uh, that one of your co-hosts on this show went as Raven one year for Halloween, but I can't uh, confirm nor deny <laughs> those, uh, <laughs> those, uh, those stories, but... Let's see if anybody goes as the franchise this year for Halloween and head on over to figuretoycompany.com. Check out the amazing line of the action figures they've got there, whether it's the rising stars of professional wrestling or the legends of professional wrestling with the franchise. Shane Douglas highlighted right there, smack dab in the middle of that line, as well as Francine coming in 2019. And like we talked about last week on the show, the the amazing and they revealed the concept art and what it's going to look like the chris candido action figure finally seen the light of day in 2019 amazing for those collectors that are completists and you can fulfill your triple threat obligations by throwing everybody together you just got to go find your bam bam from your wwe collection but you know whatever that's uh, that's all on you if you've got that but Look, it's been a fun episode number 69. We'll get on the road to episode 70. But first, Shane, where are you going to be out in the wild this weekend doing your thing? Uh, This coming Friday, I'm going to be over in Indiana uh, wrestling. uh, The name of the town. I apologize. I just uh, I I had Cincinnati in my head because that's where I'm flying into and out of. 
but wrestling right across the border. Uh, so I'll be there Friday night. Uh, and then Saturday, I will be flying to the great state of Louisiana and we'll be appearing uh, in Louisiana on Saturday. So pretty full weekend. I fly back to Cincinnati and drive from Cincinnati back to the Berg. So going to be a complete uh, the uh, around the world in 80 days with the franchise on uh, Friday and Saturday. Are you going to be a pro wrestler or a zombie by the end of that trip? <laughs> I'll be a, a, a zombie playing a pro, pro wrestler. <laughs> Reversing the rules. <laughs> well, wonderful. Enjoy your trip out there and uh, seeing some of the great fans out in those areas. And uh, come out and support the franchise, folks, because uh, I know you're just dying to uh, get your ass franchise. But, Shane, with all that being said, let's wrap it up here one more time. Get us out of episode number 69 and head us out there into a spectacular episode 70 next week. Hey, get ready to come into a big Halloween week uh, week uh, coming up here in, uh, in America. Make sure it's a damn spooky one. Check out Pro Wrestlers vs. Zombies. Greatest horror wrestling slash movie that stars the franchise. Uh, uh, Roddy Piper and Kurt Angle and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. In fact, it's probably the only horror wrestling movie that stars the four of us uh uh matt hardy Rebby sky as well check it out if you don't do that you'll get your ass franchised <laughs> thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling what the world is downloading